chapter 20, chapter 20 and verse 24 to the end of the chapter. So if you don't have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to use the Pew Bible there provided in front of you, and that's page 907. We have been trying to do one chapter a week in the Gospel of John, but uh, there were two pieces of um, this chapter I wanted to us to look at. Obviously, one of those was last week for Easter and the resurrection, and then uh, this week with Jesus and Thomas. So John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, would you stand as we read God's word together? Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may be seated and let's take a few minutes for this word. And it's been a great gift for many people. They enjoy just in most services, there's absolutely no silence. And so when there's no silence, it's hard for you to think when somebody else is talking or singing. And also it sets the word apart. In other words, the most important thing is what just got read. Far secondary to that is what I'm going to say now. And so we want to be like the Berean believers. We want to make sure we understand the word and what's being said about the word is true. So a good moment there. The purpose of John's gospel, we've said this many weeks, is here now in our text, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs. This could have been the very first verse in John's gospel. He did many signs in the presence of his disciples. Some of are not written in this book. And you you want to say, why not? I mean, let's just make it longer. I'd be okay with that. But John didn't write all of them down. He had a particular purpose. And the purpose is that the what he wrote down is written so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that by believing in him, you would have life. And, of course, these words echo the theme from the opening words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and Jesus was with God in the beginning. In Him was life. And to all who receive Him, to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So John opens and closes his gospel really with the same message. Uh, Believing in Christ brings life to the person. And so he's selected this information so that you would see Jesus, that you would believe in him, and then you would really begin to have life. And as you study this uh, book, 
you, you become aware that John is very selective in choosing his material. There were many other things that he recorded, but in this gospel, John records only eight miracles, which is the least of all the gospels or the least recorded of all the other gospel writers. Some scholars say that uh, John is actually only recording 21 days of activity by Jesus. So if you'd look through the whole gospel and just say, okay, this event happened on a particular day. This has happened on another day. Really, John is just giving you 21 days in Jesus's life. And many scholars believe that the the text originally ended in chapter 20. The chapter 21, which we'll talk about next week, was uh, an additional piece. And you could see why it would end here. And the climax here now is in this confession of Thomas. So we're we're moving to this point. You, you might remember when we got to the um, the resurrection of Lazarus, that was the last miracle. And I, I use this picture. It's like you've climbed to the top of this mountain. You've you've gone one miracle after another. And John's been trying to help you see something. And you get to Lazarus that somebody came back from the dead and you realize all of these miracles are really pointing, when you get to the top of this mountain, are pointing to a much larger mountain. That they're really pointing to Jesus and all of this is driving your attention. And so then in chapter 12, you sort of start your hike again and you get to the death and the resurrection and then the proclamation or confession of Thomas. So here we are at the second peak in the gospel. And so... John has recorded these particular events, and I think he wants to see something us to see something very specific here about this encounter between Jesus and Thomas. And the way I've thought about it is we get to see the heart of the gospel. We get to see the heart of God, and then we get to ask, what's the condition of our own heart? So I think in this text, we'll get to see the heart of the gospel We'll get to a picture, a little glimpse into God's heart, and then it'll be left to examine what, what's your own heart. So the heart of the gospel. What is the gospel? I mean, somebody comes up to you and you say, you should trust in the gospel. They say, okay, what is the gospel? I mean, if you're a believer, you should have a good answer to this question. <laughs> But a lot of times you kind of fumble around. And so a good answer would just be, quote, Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. This is the gospel that Christ died for our sins. According to the scripture, he was buried. He was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures, he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of who are living. So, so Jesus came to the earth. He was, uh, he died. All this was according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. And so this is the thing of first importance. This is the, the first step for the apostle Paul. It's, he's trying to say to this uh, group of, of Corinthians, this church that has so many different problems. 
He wants to make sure that in the midst of all these problems that the church understands, that we understand there is an issue of first importance. There is a first step that you need to take before you begin the second step, the second dance with Jesus. There's a first step and then there's a second step. And you might think of it as if you're at a, a wedding and you just don't know how to dance, that this is, of course, not describing me, but other people. And you just say, well, if I could just get the box step down, right, then I could at least pretend as if I'm knowing what I'm doing. But, you know, even in the box step, you've got to lead with the correct foot, do you not? And if you're the guy, you're the leader, you're going to lead with your left. Because if you lead with your right, what happens? You step on the woman's foot and then just chaos, Right. And many women are going, yes, that's my husband, always leading with the right, stepping now on my foot and we're falling over. But if you if you would just lead with your right, you could do the box step and you could get yourself around the dance floor and look like, well, at least they sort of know what they're doing. But if you lead with the wrong foot, it's just going to be a disaster for you. It's going to be a disaster for everybody else. So so Paul is saying There is an issue of first importance. There's a a foot that has to lead first. And if you don't lead with that foot first, then you can have a real problem. So let's return to this. The first step is to believe that something was done. That's That's the issue of first importance. He's trying to tell the. The church at Corinth, you've got to believe that something was done, that Jesus died, Jesus buried and Jesus was risen on the third day. And let's go back to Thomas. What's what's Thomas's biggest problem? Well, first of all, he missed a very important meeting. And let's just say bummer for Thomas. I mean, gosh, I mean, whether they were all together and they said, hey, who wants to go out and get pizza? Thomas, you go get pizza. And Thomas comes back. I miss Jesus. You know, or Thomas was the guy who's habitually late to meetings. See, I told you, Thomas, it was going to cost you one day when you were late. I mean, we don't know what happens, but everyone's there except for Thomas. It's just he missed the biggest meeting in human history. It's a bummer for Thomas. But but his biggest problem isn't that he missed a meeting. His his biggest problem isn't even doubt. As you think of doubting Thomas, his biggest problem is unbelief. Jesus says, don't don't disbelieve anymore, Thomas. Believe. Thomas not only refuses to believe, but he lays down this ultimatum. I mean, you can appreciate it, can't you? You're all your friends got to do something and you missed it. And as a guy, you've got some pride on the line and and you just say things maybe you wish you hadn't said. Hey, unless I see the hands, the hands, the mark of the nails, the if I can place my finger in his side, uh, th- then maybe I'll believe. But but I'm not ever going to believe unless that happens. And so eight long Days go by with Jesus not appearing to the disciples. I mean, just imagine if you're Thomas during that eight days. You get together and you're having a meal. And what are the ten people talking about? I mean, they're talking about that they saw the Lord. Yeah, Thomas, you oh, oops, sorry. I mean, you know what? I mean, awkward, right? 
And so after eight days, says in verse 27, Jesus appeared and Thomas is there. Well, I guess Thomas isn't going to miss another meeting. Hey, send somebody else out for pizza. I'm going to make sure I'm here all the time. And Jesus comes to Thomas. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And you, and you see the heart of the gospel here. John is, is helping the reader say, in the very end, reader, whether you're a reader in the first century or you're a reader in the 21st century, the very first step is to believe that something was done, that Jesus came, that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus was risen from the tomb. That's the heart of the gospel. Of all the things John could have chosen, he selects this particular encounter to highlight the, the, the most important first step is to, to believe. And it's so critical to understand this as the first step. Because that's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is about what Jesus did, not what Jesus taught. And we have to really make sure we understand that because you could lead with the wrong foot here. The first step is to believe that Jesus has done something. The second step, as important as it is, is that he taught us something. And if we lead, lead with the wrong foot, we're going to find ourselves in, in pretty deep water here. Uh, because when, when Paul's passing this on, when John is passing this on, it's, it's important because it's important to understand what Jesus did rather than what Jesus taught. Because if you, if you begin a conversation about the gospel and you lead with a list, hey, let me tell you about the gospel. Here's the things you're supposed to do. You see where you get off track. If you lead with, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. You should. That's not the first step. You should do good to those who hate you. You should bless those who curse you. You should pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, you should turn the other cheek. You should. That's just not the first step. And that's, it's critical to understand what the first step is. The first step is something that has gotten done. It's not what you do. You see, the first step is always to look to Jesus. And then the second step, I'm following in behind. But what can happen so quickly in our presentation of the gospel, whether it's just the way we live our lives or whether you're sitting down and talking with somebody, you say, hey, buddy, you need to clean up your life. You see what you've done? I'm stepping now on this guy's foot and it's a mess because he can't clean up his life. That's the whole problem. What we need to do is lead with the first step and say, here's the first step. Somebody has cleaned up your life. Amen. Now, because of that, then you want to respond in the right way. But if you start with, hey, the first step is the things that you want to do, then you've traded the gospel of grace for religion. And that is so easy to do. And John understands it's so easy to do. Jesus understands that it's so easy to lose the gospel and replace it for religion. That the heart of Christianity is Jesus. 
his entrance into the world. It's not his teaching. I mean, I mean, just think about that. Do you need another teacher? I mean, aren't the Ten Commandments enough to show you that your real problem isn't clear communication? I mean, the Ten Commandments are clear, are they not? I don't need more clarity on the Ten Commandments. I need more ability to obey the Ten Commandments. My problem is when I read the Ten Commandments is not that they're foggy. It's, it's just that I just can't do them. And so I don't need somebody to come give me some clearer teaching. I need somebody to come rescue me from this in some way. And so we've got to make sure we understand what the, the first step is. And the first step is Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. And only when you get that first step down can you take the second step in how you follow after him. And we'll talk again about this a little bit next week, but a perfect example of this happens in the next chapter. Remember when Jesus is going to restore Peter and they have this little one-on-one conversation. And Jesus takes Peter aside and he says, Peter, do you love me? You know I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Three times. Peter, do you love me? Why the repetition? I mean, maybe it's because Peter denied Jesus three times. But, but I think that it's to confirm the gospel in Peter's life. Peter, I want to make sure you got the first step right. See, see, when I came to you and said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. You're, you're, the, you're going to be the first proclaimer of the good news here. In Acts chapter 2, you're going to be the one who stands up and gives the very first New Testament charge. This very first New Testament sermon. And, and I've got to make sure, Peter, in this little one-on-one meeting, that you understand the gospel. You're going to be the founder of the New Testament church. And what I want to make sure is that you really love me and that you're not doing something in order to pay me back. You feel that, don't you? Jesus comes to Peter. Peter knows, man, he's messed it up. And he feels so badly about it. Even the women at the tomb, you know, they're saying, go tell the disciples and... Peter that I've come back. In other words, everybody knows Peter's really messed it up. Peter knows he's really messed it up. And Jesus comes back and says, I'm going to reinstate you, Peter. And what could Peter think? Oh, if I've given one more, if I'm just given one more chance, I'll make it up to you, Jesus. You can't make this up. It's very possible that you've come to church and really what you're trying to do is you know you're a big mess up. And you hear God loves you, but you spent all of your life trying to pay him back. That's not grace. That's religion. And, and Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, you're, you're going to be the mouthpiece, man. You've got to make sure you take the first right step. I want people to know me, to understand my grace. I'm not looking for payback. I did the paying back. 
Now I'm looking for people who are following me after the love and display on the cross and what I've done. Peter, before you go and feed any sheep, let's make sure you understand the gospel. Because you could go out there and think you're feeding people, but you're leading them with the wrong foot. And you're really not giving them grace. You're giving them religion. Legend has it that Peter was the only disciple to do mission work outside of the Roman Empire. And apparently, Thomas ended up in India. India, three million gods. Thomas chose this place to go and preach the gospel. And again, according to history, Thomas was praying one day and somebody came up from behind him with a spear and ran it through his back and through his chest and killed him. And I wonder what could move Thomas to do that. Why would you be able to take those kinds of risks? Why would you be willing to move into that kind of hostile climate? And the answer is Thomas understood that something got done. It was it was a settled matter. Something got done. Not just for Thomas, but other people who would never see Jesus. And he wanted to go a long way away and say, hey, I know I know you're not going to see him. But blessed are you if you could believe. You could believe that something got done. It's not about you're serving millions of gods that are demanding that you do certain things to get to Christ or to get to heaven. It's never going to work that way. He's heaven has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel is about what Jesus has done. We see the heart of God. Secondly, here, verse 25, Thomas is sitting here with some sort of pride, maybe a. Uh, some sort of bravado, maybe some sort of defiance. Unless I see these things, I'm I'm never going to believe. And Jesus comes to him and turns to Thomas. What would you want to say? Told you you should never miss a meeting. I mean, I don't know. What would you want to say? Thomas, hey, okay, put your finger here. See my hands. One of the unnerving things about this is Jesus had never been around Thomas to hear this. So Jesus knows all your ultimatums. He knows all your motives. He knows everything about you. And what's amazing is he he's continuing to come. It is grace that he came back at all for Thomas. And he's always coming back. You notice that Peter, I'm com- Peter, I'm coming back to restore you. You notice that the woman at the well, she's got a terrible moral, moral life. 
And what does Jesus do? I'm coming to you. When Adam and Eve fall in the Garden of Eden, what's the first thing that happens? God is coming back to him, to them. The heart of God is he's always moving towards the unbeliever. He's always moving towards the person who is immoral. He's always moving to the disbeliever. He's always his heart is always open, always moving to that person. And I'm thankful for that movement. See, even though he knows your doubts, he knows your blasphemy, he knows your immoral immorality, he's, he's always moving. There's no, there's no hurdle that's so large. There's nothing that you've done that you would just say, even God can't get over this. That's a lie. The heart of the gospel is what Jesus has done. God's heart constantly moving towards you despite your current condition. But finally... We have to examine our own heart. That's been one of the themes through the whole book. John is just trying to say here, I'm telling you what I think about Jesus. I'm going to tell you about these encounters. But all the way along, you're talking to your friend who you're leading through the gospel of John and saying, hey, you know, we're all the way along. We're getting to this. What do you say about Jesus? Who do you think he is? What's the condition of your own heart? I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but would it be easier to believe the resurrection if it wasn't so long ago? I mean, you think about it. We're sitting here in this room in Wilmington, North Carolina, 2,000 years removed, and geography several thousand miles away from the event. Would it be easier if it happened 1,000 years ago? I mean, you in touch with history a thousand years ago, and that would make you feel a little bit more connected? Probably not. How about 500 years ago? What if it was like 230 years ago when our country was born and George Washington was around? Would you say, okay, just because it's closer, I'm more apt to believe. What if it was last year? I'm telling you, saying, hey, something happened in April of 2011. What if it was yesterday? And I'm just standing up here and saying, this is what happened yesterday. It's tempting to believe, isn't it? That it would be easier. But not necessarily. We can see it from Thomas. Not necessarily. Stop stop to consider all the things that Thomas could use to believe. He had seen all these things, had he not? He had walked with Jesus. He had heard Jesus' teaching. He had seen what he had done. He had been at Lazarus' tomb. He watched a man who was born blind become a person who could see. He, He had been this person all along. He had seen all these things. And then... Imagine the turmoil for Thomas. He spent three years with these ten men. And they're all saying, Thomas, we saw it. You should believe on our testimony. And Thomas says, I don't believe it happened. So he not only disbelieves in Christ. What else does he disbelieve? 
He disbelieves all his friends. I mean, imagine the isolated feeling Thomas must have had. I'm the only one here. I have I have all this testimony that I have seen. I have the testimony of these ten closest friends, and yet I still I still refuse to believe. And it was just yesterday. The main reason why faith doesn't come any easier, whether it was yesterday or two thousand years ago, isn't really because of lack of evidence. The main reason there is a resistance to believe is because of the presence of pride. It's not really the lack of evidence. It's the the presence of pride. Maybe you've done this. You've produced some ultimatums to Jesus. Jesus, I refuse to believe in you unless... And you may have filled in your own blank at some point in your life. Unless I can experience a certain thing, unless I, I get a certain sign, and unless I'm given an explanation of the pain and suffering for my life, and unless you answer, for, answer to me as to why I was born into this family, unless I can get a reasonable explanation for the beginning of the world, then I just can't believe. See, so frequently what happens is people are thinking of themselves as the boss, interviewing someone for the job of Savior when they come to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I got some troubles. I need a Savior. Oh, Jesus, yeah, thank you for coming today. I'm so glad that you're here. Here, have a seat. Would you like some coffee as we do the interview? And that's sort of just the attitude. I, I see your resume here, Jesus. Thank you for sending that in. Not a lot of formal education, but you have done some impressive things. I mean, walking on water, you know, healing a blind man. Wonderful. Glad you got those things in place. But see, the thing is, is that Jesus is not someone in need of you. You're desperately in need of him. You're not interviewing him. He's interviewing you. But so often we come like we're the boss. And he must answer these questions. And you know what that makes you? God. And so the the real problem with belief, the real problem with faith, or maybe I should say it this way, the greatest barrier is not some evidence, it's, it's the presence of pride. And that's available to every person in every generation, pride. So the question here is, where, where is your faith? You know, everyone here is a person of faith. It's by design. Just ask you, where where is your faith? What have you put your faith in? John is, is imploring the reader. Jesus did these things so that you would believe. And that by believing you would have life. If you're here and you're someone who's would say I'm seeking, I'm I'm looking into Christianity. I have some questions, but I, I'm trying to figure this out. The, the first step is to, to believe in Jesus, not to do something, but to accept what's 
been done. And maybe you would say, I, I, I just need to take that step and, and believe of what's done. I need to, to make this confession like Thomas has made. I, I, I believe that you are the Lord. You are, you are God. You are my Savior. If that's difficult for you to say, I would want you to evaluate whether you're really resisting Jesus on the basis of evidence or is it your own pride is getting in the way? If you're a believer, I'm asking you to consider whether you've led with the right foot. I mean, have you been following after Christ your whole life just trying to pay him back for what he's done? When you come to people and you want to say something about the grace of God is, is really what comes out of your life. Hey, you need to clean yourself up. There's some things you need to take care of first. I mean, are you exporting religion? Or are you exporting grace? Do, do you love Jesus? See, the way you start out makes a big difference on how you end up. And John understands that. He understands that with Thomas. He understands that with Peter. He understands that with us. Do you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Is that your first step? And then everything else follows after that? Or is there some other step that you've taken? Let's pray together.